Today on the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast, episode number 85. My today, my guest, Joe Lafferty, the real bionic man, the author of the book, Just in Time, a memoir of faith, fight for life. Joe overcome a lot of medical issues and became a mentor to many young football players and an advocate for organ donations and how organ donations can save lives. Do you know your liver has superpowers? Yes. I never knew this, actually, but it's pretty interesting. We'll learn more about that next on the podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, my name is Joe Foley. I really, I really, really, really want to thank you for being here. Hey, it's the first time. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. And you choose to spend time means a lot to me. Yes, I always say this, but it's true. You spending time listening to me, especially during this time, because you know what's funny? During this whole virus stuff and the time that we're recording, a lot of the people are not driving to work. So you choose to spend time listening to me, even though you could be listening to watching Netflix. I really do appreciate you. I had an interesting question. How are you doing during this um, virus, coronavirus, the pandemic? How's life for you right now? How's it changed? How are you dealing with it? It's interesting. It's stressful and it's a weird feeling too, especially going into the store and stuff like that. And I see some of the challenges like trying to keep six feet, um, wearing masks. It's just, it's a whole new situation, a new world. It just, it only happened. It happened so quick. Happened so quick and kind of throws consistency right out the window. Really does. It's just, it's one of those things. And I was just kind of curious how you're dealing with it and how you and your family are dealing with it. You know, leave a comment in the show notes and share some interesting stories and how you, how you deal with some fun, interesting ways of being creative ways and how you and your family spend quality time together during this pandemic. I'd be kind of curious. I kind of curious what you're doing and please share. Next up, my guest, Joe Laffer, the author of the book, Just in Time, a memoir of faith and the fight for life. Joe shares stories about growing up and dealing with a lot of adversities and health issues. This man's gone through, like, diabetes, cancer, open-heart surgery. Man, the guy's like, wow. I mean, everything. He's, he's been through a lot of stuff. And it's interesting to hear his stories about his dad and how his dad set great examples of him for, as a young child and helped him coach a lot of um, young football players who actually became went on to have great careers as football players. And Joe was his men, their mentors. It was kind of interesting to hear about that. And also a real heartwarming story about Joe, after he had an um, organ transplant, got to meet the donor family. It was pretty pretty powerful. And you learn about organ donation, which is really important. It's going to find out. There's some things that Joe sent me in an email, and I thought it was pretty interesting. Prior to the virus, this is prior to the virus, there was more than 80, oh, I'm sorry, more than 8,000 people died waiting on the organ transplant list. Pre- and post-operation transplants, people, patients are on the highest risk right now every flu season. And advocacy and dispel myth saves lives, Reacher showed in 2008. It's kind of interesting to, because a lot of stuff I didn't know about organ transplants. And I listened to Joe talk about it. It was kind of interesting. And 
as I teased in the beginning, do you know your liver has a superpower? Not really a superpower, but I didn't realize this, you know, when you draw, <laughs> I didn't think this could happen. And we share that next in the uh, interview. Joe shares a lot, so let's jump right in. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Hey, Joe. I'm really, really, really honored to be here because uh, I'm, a, I'm a special dad, I think. And I mean that in the sense that I'm not a full dad, but I've done a lot of dad-like work. Uh, I coached 14 years of high school football to a lot of young men who didn't have a father and some that didn't have a mother, but more of them didn't have a father. And I got to be, I got, I got to be, I got to be kind of a dad. And when you play football where I coached and football is something, you know how you say that, well, you spend more time every day with the people you work with rather than your your own family. Mm -hmm. These, these high school kids spend a lot of time with us and we're honored by those relationships. So, you got you had to, you had to be a dad. You had to be uh, you know we had different coaches for different things. As far as we had the drill sergeant coach, we had the kind of older guys were kind of the yaw shucks kind of grandpa coaches, and I was one of the drill sergeant types. But uh, just like you know, you work with kids, you love them, and uh, you have to be the same all the time. You have to show up every day. You're not late. You're not skipping practices, and uh, it evolves. And so. The title of your podcast meant a lot to me because I'm I come from a sports background and uh, sitting on the sidelines is not an option. I wonder if you can give me an example of um something some kids some kids you, know, you coach football some of the challenges and how maybe you help overcome them or football over help them overcome it. Great question. That really ranges. So uh, I remember specifically uh, there were two young men. They were half brothers different last names there, but they were living together with their common mom. And, uh, it was interesting because it came up on, uh, it, they were both excellent football players. And I'm not going to say more than that because mm-hmm. one of them, I'm not going to say more than that. Uh, they were excellent football. Well, yeah, they're excellent football players and it was coming up on beginning of the year and they were both, uh, skilled positions. I'm, I'm being very careful. I don't want anyone to know who these people are. Mm-hmm. They're both skilled positions, and I could I could see that the gloves that they wore, because the kids wear the gloves, it helps their performance. They were kind of ratty and had some holes in them. And uh, we as a team try to buy, and you know we're at a school district. We, we have a limited budget for other things other than you know the, the helmets and the shoulder pads. But we would try to get them gloves when we could. And I was coming up on my birthday, which is you know right around the beginning of football season. And my mother said to me, hey, uh, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, well, let's go to a sporting goods store. And she said, okay. And I went in and I picked out these gloves. And she said, this is what you want. And I said, yeah, if you're going to get me a gift, let me get a couple of pairs of these gloves. She said, what are they for? And I said, well, they're for these two kids who play for us. And they didn't ask and they didn't need it. It was just something I identified. And I went and I took those. I gave them to those guys and said, here, this is for the season. Good luck this year. And uh, they were both kind of blown away. And some of the pictures they took at the beginning of the year, they kind of worked, kind of showed their gloves. Uh, and uh, they were really appreciative. They're both good men today. Uh, it was just little things like that. You know, like I said, showing up every day and being a consistent person. Uh, you're not going to be perfect. No one is. But it's the consistency. It's the being there at the same time every day for the same reasons. So that was one thing, and the the glove is kind of a symbol, but that was one specific thing that I did, 
And as far as emotionally is, you know, some of these young men who started working out with us and going into their eighth grade year up to high school, they would come and they would definitely have authority figure issues, especially with men. Mm-hmm. And uh, the midget football coaches, the youth, peewee youth, whatever you call it, football coaches, they tend to just kind of like buddy the, buddy the kids, at least in our area at the time. And when it gets up to the high school, it's another level. And you want them to be ready for that level because we play at a, uh, where I coached. It's a high, it's a high, the highest level of football in the Pittsburgh area, high school in the Pittsburgh area, which is one of the best in the country. Mm-hmm. So you want these kids ready mentally and physically so they don't get hurt. And, you know, I could see the evolution of a young man where he would come and he would be, if you were critical about technique, even in a, a bill, even in a kind way, he, they're very resistant and, and even a little reluctant to listen to you. But within a year of them knowing you there every day, you could, I could jump on them for nothing. And they would say, wait, 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 what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? But I didn't do that. But they were very receptive then to the criticism or the, the critiquing of their technique. So it, it's the evolution of a young man that I really loved. And like I said, it's all about consistency. Then I know that you also have two stepsons. I do. I do. Uh, that was a blessing. I didn't find a woman of my dreams until I was 40. Mm-hmm. The seven previous years to meeting her, I hadn't dated anyone, and they were the toughest times medically. I, I, I just took myself out of, didn't worry about girls. Uh, I don't know. Well, I, I, I took myself away from women, and uh, I had, you know, had a fun single life you know, as I grew into my uh, early 30s. But then from you know, 34 to 30, 34 to 40, those really tough medical times I had, I just didn't even bother thinking. I didn't really think much about women. And then after my transplant, I met this girl at a high school reunion. She was actually a friend of some people. And I, had, I'd go, she'd gone to grade school with us. But I saw a lot of my friends, and I said, man, I need to go get a life. And then a year and a half later, there was a surprise birthday party for that same person, that same girl. And I said, oh, yes, I'll go. And I saw her again and come to find out she was single. She had been divorced mm-hmm. and she had two sons. And uh, one of them, the 18-year-old Cameron, he lives with us now. Uh, I, when I visit, Jen lives in Florida and Cameron lives in Florida. I spend as much time here in Florida as I can. But medically, I have to be in Pittsburgh every, well, at least every every month or so to stay connected with my medical team. And that's where I, that's where I legally reside. So, yes. Yeah. Two stepsons, and it's a very unique situation. Well, I was wondering, another thing I guess is a good transition about um, something in your book, something about your your childhood illnesses and like the challenges you face as a kid and as an adult. I don't know if you want to talk about that because it's amazing. It's amazing you're here today. Uh, it's nothing. I'm, I'm here just by the grace of God. And there's a there's a, a story in my book where I'm, it's just a story in my book after I had uh, died for seven minutes. And, and and they brought me back in the hospital. And, uh, you know, it was a couple months later, and I was still, I was walking around football practice. Actually, the picture on the cover of my book was taken on a sideline in Dallas, Texas, 39 days after I died. Oh, and wow. uh, just about seven days after I got out of the hospital. And 108 or 9 degrees on the field, I probably shouldn't have been there, but I made the trip anyway. It was, I, like I said, I'm from Pittsburgh. I live in Pittsburgh. Our team's from Pittsburgh. 
We had this special trip planned for a year to go to Dallas, play in Texas Stadium and play a local team in Dallas. So I was getting out of the hospital to go there come hell or high water. That's the cover of the book. You know, uh, it was so interesting. It, it, it was so interesting that um, I was able to be that example for the young men. And they, after that, a lot of them really dialed into my story. But in my book, there's a little story right, right around that time, not long after I died, and I'm at football practice. And one of the moms saw me and came running over and said, gosh, Joe, it's so great to see you. I'm, I'm glad you're well. And I said, I am. And I was standing there with a, a, a father, a, a father of five of our football players, uh, Mike Yezovich. He has uh, 13 children total. Oh, wow. I'm sorry, 12. Yeah, 12 children total. Five of them played for us, the Yezzy boys. And uh, his wife makes the best chocolate and peanut butter brownie. They're called Yezzy brownies. And they're famous in our area. She needs to go on Shark Tank with those Yezzy brownies, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah, so I was standing there with Mike, and he's a very cool, deeply man. He's the manager of a Catholic cemetery. He's the kindest, hardest-working guy I know. And I'm standing there with Mike, and she came over and was, you know, showering me with love and, you know, saying it was great to see me. And right before she left, she turned to me, and she's like, Coach, you're so strong. You're so, you're so courageous. And she's like, you're, and I was like, well, thank you. I'm blessed. And she said, no, you're strong. And she walked away. And I, it was a long pause, awkward. And I turned to Mike and I said, you know, Mike, it's not me. And he said, no, Joe, it's God. No one's that strong. And I'm like, Mike, you're absolutely right. No one is, is strong. So no one's as strong enough to go through everything I went through by themselves. I, I had God. I had a good family. I had a great medical team at uh, UPMC, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. So no one, I think it was uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. No one was anything alone. So yeah, I, uh, I have overcome a lot and I can detail that, but it wasn't just by me. It was about a lot of things in a team. Bill, your book about your father and you being in the hospital and you heard him, over the, heard him on the phone almost in tears. Yes, that's when I was nine years old. Uh, if you sadly, it's sadly, uh, if you know anyone who's ever had pancreatic cancer or lost someone to pancreatic cancer, the problem with that pancreatic cancer is you don't know you're sick until this blinding pain drops you. And that's the cancer affecting your pancreas. So during the chemo, I got pancreatitis, which is an inflammation of the pancreas. And I was, it was the most painful thing I'd ever experienced. And I had already experienced a lot with chemotherapy, radiation, the needles, the bone marrow, checks, the uh, spinal taps. I'd already experienced a lot. And this was something that was blinding and, and I was crying out loud and I couldn't stop. And my dad was in the other room. Uh, this was the first time my mother had been out of town in a couple years because of my sickness. She would never leave me. And my dad bought her a trip and her and a friend went to see the Steelers play in New Orleans. And she was out of town when this pancreatitis flared up and they were trying to get her back. But I was in the hospital laying there nine years old and I heard my father, my strength, my rock, my dad in the other room crying. And when I heard him crying, he said to my mother, whose name is Linda, I don't know what to tell him, Lynn. I don't know how to tell him, Lynn. And I, at that moment, with all the pain, and they had given me something to kind of take the edge off the pain, I, th I pretty much knew that I was dying. And he had to come in and tell me that I was dying. 
And I thought about it for a minute and I went to a calm place and he came in a few minutes later and he said, okay, here's where we're going. Here's what's going on. And I asked him, dad, am I dying? And he looked at me and he said, no, of course not. And I knew my dad wouldn't lie to me. Mm -hmm. He always told the truth to me about my, my illnesses. So he said, absolutely not. So I knew at that time I was fine. Uh, it was, it was my dad who told me my dad who doesn't know if a football is stuffed or filled with air. Now he can, he can, he can take apart a car and rebuild it for you, but he was not a sports guy at all. And I'm a sports guy. So it was my dad when I was you know, diagnosed with cancer who said, well, listen, you can lay on the couch for the next two years or when you're sick from the side effects, you can lay on the couch. But then as soon as you're fine, you can get back up and do what you've always been doing. And I was an active child. So I took that mantra throughout my life. So whenever I was sick, I would lay down as long as I had to. But I got out of, I, try, I was always trying to get out of the hospital bed and go for a walk uh, around the nurse's station or something. I remember in the pre-interview, uh, we talked about, an ex um, we worked at the gas station. He met Mrs. Rogers, like Fred Rogers and Mrs. Rogers. Yes. My father was managing gas station Geary's Atlantic in a shady side section of the city of Pittsburgh. And this is where the rich of the rich lived when Pittsburgh, old Pittsburgh, that's where the Fricks, the Mellons, Carnegie's lived in that area. And uh, this, this, this is a beautiful area. The people who found that the industrialists that founded Pittsburgh and owned steel mills and coal mines and so this is a beautiful area, and it's still beautiful today. They've, it's always been nice. And that's where Fred and his wife, I don't know her first name, but that's where Fred and Mr. and Mrs. Rogers lived. So uh, at that time, you know, this is the uh, 60s and 70s, when my dad, late 60s, early 70s, when my dad was managing this gas station. Now, we, we think about gas stations today. They're all connected to convenience stores, and you everyone pumps their own gas on Unless you're in New Jersey, I think they still have that law. You're not allowed to pump your own gas. So back then, as you know, Joe, because we're about the same age, in our youth, that's when gas stations, you'd pull in, they'd come out, get your gas, check your tires, check your oil, check your fluids, and you'd get that full service from a person. So you'd have two or three people working, plus they did all your repairs. You know, you didn't always take it back to the dealership, your local garage, your local gas station did all the repairs for your car. That's where you got your wipers and your, your tires. They did your brakes. So this is what my father was managing in this very nice area. And Mr. Rogers lived down the street and he was, he and his wife were regular customers. And that was the other thing about your local gas station. You knew your customers. So Mrs. Rogers pulled in and she, her tire was almost flat. And my dad said, there's something wrong with your tire. And she pulled it in and he looked at it. He said, you need a new tire. She said, well, I need to get home. So my dad drove her home, came back. They had, had his guys fix the tire. Then without even asking, there was no plans. He then drove the car back to the, the Rogers house, left it in the driveway, left the keys on the visor like they used to do, and had his had one of his guys driving back to the gas station. And that was because they had an account. So didn't have to ex exchange money or anything. The, the, fam the Rogers family had an account. And Fred pulled into, you know, one day and he thanked my father and it was raining. It was cold. It's Pittsburgh. And my dad was sneezing and coughing. And uh, Mr. Rogers thanked him for the service he gave his wife. And he could tell. And he said, Joe, you have a cold. My dad said, yeah, I'm just getting over it. It's, I'm a little congested. And Mr. Rogers said, well, you know, if you take 
1,200 milligrams of vitamin C every day, you'll never have a cold or whatever that number is. I'm not sure about that part of the story. And my dad said, oh, well, thank you, Fred. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll definitely look into that. And that's just, my, my dad's not a vitamin guy. Uh, he's, a, he's healthy, but he's not a vitamin guy. And even back then. So uh, he kind of wrote that off and thanked him for the information. And within an hour, Fred pulled back into the gas station, blew the horn. My dad ran out to the car. And Mr. Rogers had purchased vitamin C tablets and was giving them to my father. <laughs> so it became this little friendship, you know. I mean, friendship you have with a vendor. And eventually, when uh, my sister was four and I was three, we went to uh, Mr. Rogers said, well, how can I pay you back for taking care of my wife? My dad said, well, my kids would love to meet you. And so my mother and my father, my sister and I, my sister's 14 months older than she, she was four. I was three. We went to Mr. Rogers house. I have no memory of it. I wish I did. My sister remembers it because Mr. Rogers and his wife had this kind of large living room and it was beautiful. And they had this beautiful grand piano mm -hmm. and that's what she remembers from it. So, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was at Mr. Rogers house and it was his literal house, not the, not the set at, uh, PBS. It was an interesting story. It made me uh, laugh and smile a little bit at the same time when you did mention that story. Well, one, one funny thing is I met uh, about 20 years ago, I met David Paul, Reverend David Paul, who's highlighted in my book, kind of a spiritual guide of mine. Uh, he's, he's, he's a good person for me. He's like both a psychologist. He's an Ivy, Ivy League trained psychologist. And then he went to Princeton for theological. So Reverend David Paul, I, once, I told him that story when we first met about Mr. Rogers, and he knew him. Uh, David's a Presbyterian minister, and uh, he sat around in some deep Bible conversations with Fred and some of friends. Fred, you know how introspective Fred was and how he liked to study and discuss things. So uh, that's, that's, David, that's David Paul's claim to fame in my book. One thing is interesting, and I, I listened to um, another show you were on and I read a little about it, and it's actually the title, Just in, Just in Time. What, is the, what does that mean, just in time? Well, you know, my, my father and my sister and David, Reverend David Paul, and a kind of a second father to me is a gentleman by the name of Bill Curry. They all went to get tested to give me their kidney because uh, you can get a kidney and then get a pancreas later. For some reason, my sister got dinged because... She was, uh, when she, her second pregnancy, they were watching her for gestational diabetes. So they said she couldn't donate. David Paul couldn't donate because on his mission trip to Africa, he'd had malaria years before. And they said, well, that's not our first choice. So they dinged David Paul. They dinged my friend. My, they dinged my friend Bill Curry from giving me, him, giving me one of his kidneys because he thought he was one blood type. He thought he was my blood type. And he was the other, which I still count that as a trying to give. And he's, he's, a, he's a blessing. My father had the wrong, something was wrong with his tissue type in mine. So none of those kidneys were going to work. I knew I was going to have to wait for a, a deceased donor. And that was tough mentally for me. When I got the call in February of 2010, they said, your donor is a 16-year-old boy who's been in a car wreck, sustained a massive head injury, and uh, come to the hospital. If you, if you want these organs, it was about a couple months later that my godfather, he lived in the area where my donor came from and he reached, he, he was, he had worked for the post gazette for years. 
These guys read the paper every day. He'd read the local paper and he saw an obituary that matched my donor. And he gave it to my father and, you know, out of the woods and healthy. My dad said, I have this and it could be your donor. Would you like to see it? And I thought about it for a week and I said, sure. And I read this little article and the obituary and the young man's name and the story. And it definitely fit. So I did a little Google search and sure enough, all the information was true, everything but the organ donation. So I, I thought I had the right name. But then two years later, two years after my transplant, the day after two of my former players had lost the Super Bowl, I got the call that the donor family wanted to meet me. And then the Friday before Mother's Day that year, I got to meet the Bussards, Rhonda and Scott Bussard and their daughter, Courtney. They told me about their son, Justin. He had a different Justin Dale Boyer. And uh, Justin was the 16-year-old. He was a great kid. And I knew that I'd have to spend the rest of my life. I'm not responsible for Justin's soul. That's in heaven. Mm -hmm. But I am responsible for the time he's given me. So when I started thinking about a book, the title Justin Time was just apropos. And uh, God knows I'm a marketing guy. He knew I would make the best of the title. So uh, I think it, I think it all works for good. I live my life on time given to me by Justin, and that's why the book is titled Justin in Time. What is it like meeting the um, the donor family? What was how was it for you? Uh, it was amazing. Uh, it, it's 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 really indescribable. I extended my hand to Rhonda, and she said we're hug shrieked and said we're huggers. Now, they had read a letter from me about a year before that, so they knew. I was thankful. They knew that I was a school football coach in my spare time, that I was a spiritual person. So they knew a little bit about me. I knew nothing about them, but it was a beautiful moment and a lot of crying and hugging. And uh, we sat down and talked for about two and a half hours, almost three hours. And uh, that was uh, in that in those moments, I got to learn about Justin and some things that he did and the way that he was. And I wanted to learn everything I could. Uh, I got to know them a little bit, but I would get to know them better in, in, in the future. So I, um, it, 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 was, it was amazing. I, I wanted to hear mostly about him and the kind of life that he led. And uh, one story from that first meeting that means a lot to me was Justin, about two years prior to his death, Justin went to go live with his father in Virginia. Uh, Scott, Scott Bussard is Justin's stepfather mm -hmm. and Rhonda's his mother and uh, Scott Bussard was Justin's stepfather for 14 of his 16 years so Justin said that he wanted to go live with his dad he, I guess he was going through some teenage things and he thought well maybe I'll try living with dad maybe that'll that'll help my angst you know as, as we men grow older that's that's one thing we start to challenge authority we think we know better mm -hmm. So Justin went to live with his father in Virginia, and it didn't take. He missed his mom, so he came back to uh, Pennsylvania, and he was, you know, he was living with them for had been home about a, a year or so when he died. And at the wake, at the wake, Justin's mother heard a story that she never heard about her son. And these two girls got up at the wake, and they were the children were encouraged to tell positive stories of him. And these two girls got up. And the story was when Justin had arrived back at West Shemokin High School, his home high school that he had just left for about nine months, 
he ran into a girl and girl, let's call her girl A and girl B. Mm-hmm. He said to girl A, he said, hey, where's girl B? You guys are inseparable. You've been friends all your life. And she said, well, not long after you left, we had a falling out and we don't talk anymore. And these were girls that had been friends since birth, 15, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And Justin declared, I'm going to get you guys back together by the end of the week. And Justin had a knack. He would embarrass himself to make someone laugh. He would trip and fall. He loved the guitar. He was what I would call a goof. And what I mean by a goof is he's just fun-loving and funny and will will embarrass himself to get a laugh from someone, just put a smile on their face. And by the end of that week, Justin had those girls back to being best friends, and those best friends got up at his wake and gave that testimony of Justin. And that's the one thing that Rhonda remembers from the wake, because obviously it was an emotional time for her. And she shared that that story with me the first day, and she said, that's that's Justin. And I've heard several other stories from friends and at family events I've heard about Justin, and they all fit that same level of character. And for such a young man to be that way, because I know when I was 16, I, I probably wouldn't have embarrassed myself to make someone else laugh. But he was that kind of kid. I I, I got good I, I got good organs from him, and I think I got a little bit of his heart. So he's a great kid. He was he's a great kid, and uh, all, all, everything points to that. Everything I've learned. Well, you were also involved a lot in a lot in organ donation, like organ donation programs. And can you talk more about that? What is who what, who are you involved with? What do they do? Yes. Well, real quick, there are fifty eight organ procurement organizations. They cover the United States. They all have a designated service area. This is government regulated. It's privately funded. Everybody raises their own money, but it's government regulated. So what UNOS is the United Network for Organ Sharing. They've always been the vendor. They're the people who run, develop, and are audited all the time. They run the the, the list. Now, the list is has did different organs in different regions. When you transplant organs, the viability of an organ uh, depends a lot on how long it's outside a human body. Mm-hmm. Different organs can be outside a human body longer than others. And you can, as you can imagine, if someone needs a heart, it might have to come across the country. So that's UNOS. We're doing some volunteer work with the Organ Procurement Organization, or OPO, in Pittsburgh, and that's CORE. Mm-hmm. They all have different names. CORE is the Center for Organ Recovery and Education. So they, uh, they're they on the, they're not the hospital on the patient side. They coordinate. They're the ones who call you and tell you to get to the hospital after your surgery. They're the people who have the confidential information and then oversee the connection of recipients and donor families. And they do, ama- CORE does amazing work. After that, I got involved with UNOS as an, as an ambassador for UNOS. And two years ago, I became an advisor to something called Donate Life Hollywood. What is that, anyways? Donate Life Hollywood was founded in the late 2000 aughts, and uh, it was run by a woman named Tania Wallace. She was uh, she she was key in starting the Donate Life uh, Rose Bowl float, and she worked at the OPO in Los Angeles, which is called One Legacy, and they're kind of the big daddy or the grand poobah, to use my friend Flintstone. <laughs> They're the grand poobah of uh, OPOs in this country. As you can imagine, Los Angeles has 
maybe a dozen transplant centers. Those are hospitals, mm -hmm. very large service area. So th they're not only the biggest, but they're also great at it, at transplants. And uh, so it started there. And also because it's a proximity to Hollywood. That's why it's Donate Life Hollywood. What they were seeing in, in movies and television was the perpetuation of the myths of organ donation. And that, you know, what we see on TV, we sometimes believe is true, especially when it's a drama, a hospital drama or a, a movie that is set in set in what is reality or present day. Mm -hmm. You know, if you saw a cartoon about organ donation, you wouldn't think like, oh, that's not true. Or if you see the movie Superman and something happens in Superman, you're saying, well, this is fiction. This isn't real. But, you know, when you have a, a medical drama on television or in a movie and they do something with organ donation incorrectly, that will perpetuate the myth. And it's the myths that keep the, you know, it's 95 percent of people believe in organ donation and would accept an organ. But nationally, only about 50 percent of people are registered as organ donors. And the problem with that is this. Being able to uh, donate organs, as Justin did, as a deceased donor, only three people of every thousand people that die, die in a manner that facilitates organ donation. You, you have to die, as Justin did, on a ventilator in a hospital with no brain activity. Justin's head injury turned the lights off, essentially, that massive head injury. Uh, what they do is called a brain apnea test. They test for anything going on in your brain. Now, brain death, it's called brain death. This isn't a coma very different from a coma. No one in the history of the world has ever come back from brain death. That's it's, it's over. Mm -hmm. Lights are off and nobody's home. And they do this brain apnea test multiple times before they declare you brain dead. Other than that, your body is on a ventilator. It's running. Uh, you're breathing. And that's only when that person becomes a, available to be a deceased donor. So three people out of every thousand die that way. Now, about 7,200 people on average die in America every day. So that equates out to 22 people are available to be organ donors every day. We have 113,000 plus people waiting for organs. 20 people a day die every day waiting for an organ. Other organ donations come from living donors, like you can give someone your kidney, and the most important thing that I want people to realize is partial liver donation. You can don donate up to 40% of your liver to someone and you, the liver regenerates itself within eight months. So you donate 30% of your liver to someone that you match medically and your, your body then regrows your liver back to full size. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Wow. That's interesting. Exactly. Exact. So if we could educate people to that and that's one thing UPMC is doing they're trying to be you know really blazing the market forward we could literally eliminate people dying from liver disease on the transplant list because everyone has livers everyone could donate their liver I'm not everyone but a lot of people more than most could donate a part, a part of their liver and they could save someone's life and it would it just regrows I mean it's it's pretty much like donate it's a little more invasive but I have a friend who donates, she has thick hair, so she grows it out long, and they donate it to something called Locks of Love. And so it's, it, donating a liver is a little bit like donating your hair. It grows back.
I never knew that. That's interesting about a liver growing back. It's almost like um, when you have reptiles or something, they grow back limbs or something like that. That's very interesting. One thing I just like wrapping up is about your book. Um, I just want to talk more about your book. I do. My book, thank you very much for asking, Just in Time, A Memoir of Faith and the Fight for Life. It outlines the 30 years of my life from age 8 to 37, where I overcame cancer, became an insulin-dependent diabetic, played high school and college football, then went on to work in college and professional sports, had a lot of interactions with legendary people. In my late 20s, I lost my left eye to a staph infection from a bad scratch I got on my head, and I didn't fight off the infection. I then moved from Dallas back to Pittsburgh because, believe it or not, things were about to get bad. My blood pressure and my cholesterol shot up. It was my organs failing me. My kidneys failed me. I got evaluated for a transplant at the Starzl Institute at UPMC. They found something wrong with my heart. So they realized that I needed two steel heart valves. I had leaky heart valves. I, I needed two steel heart valves. And in 2008, summer, July 2008, I underwent valve replacement surgery. And uh, three days later, while still in the hospital, I flatlined and was down for seven minutes while they brought me back. Later that year, and there's a good story to that. that that's just a highlight. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a highlight. Because spoiler alert, I lived. And later that, in November of that year, 2008, I was put on the transplant list. And uh, blessedly, just 15 months later, on February 14th, 2010, which is National Organ Donor Day, February 14th is, I met Justin and I got his kidney and pancreas and started honoring his life. After that, I met the, the parents of my donor. I met Jennifer, the love of my life. And that whole story of being friends with people like Dan Marino and Rob Gronkowski and Bucky Dent and legendary football coach Arkeo, those are all people who contributed and are in my book, along with the, the forced Gump-like moments when I interacted with Jerry West and Dick Vitale and Rick Pitino and about five or six now NFL Hall of Famers like Chris Dolman and Tony Dorsett. So I, I, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a mom, you're going to like my story because there are great women in my story. If you're a football guy or a sports guy, I've met everyone. If you're just looking for inspiration, I think there's that too. And uh, hopefully I do it with humility. Well, I hope I do. I think I do because uh, it's all about God and it's all about Justin for me. I guess um, I, w I would say final thoughts normally, but um, how would you, I guess, heading out the door, how would you encourage somebody to be an organ donor? Because some people don't want to think about that. How would you encourage somebody? Well, there's two steps, and they're equally important. Uh, they're equally important. You, go, you can go to registerme.org, and you can register yourself in the national database. And that's great to do, but there's also a very important thing to do. And I can't stress this enough. You need to talk to your family about it because – just because you're an organ donor, just because it's on your driver's license, doesn't mean whoever is will have medical power of attorney over you, your next of kin. They also have to make that decision. And if you do, if you are one of those three people out of a thousand who die in a manner to donate organs, they that person who's the medical met your medical power of attorney who has say over you has to agree as well. And they won't be approached. They won't, no one will ask them. 
they have to know that these are your wishes. It, it was the combined decision of Rhonda Bussard and her ex-husband of uh, 17 years, Ron Boyer, who I've never met. I've never been able, I've never, uh, he, he, he chose not to meet me, Mr. Boyer did, and I respect that. And I wanna tell people who uh, don't know, some people get to meet their donor families and some people don't. Donor families, it's up to them if you want to, it's up to them, everyone has to agree to meet. And some donor families don't wanna revisit their loss. That they're not wrong in that. Ron Boyer is not wrong in that. I can only imagine he doesn't want to relive the loss of his son. And I thank him. I love him because he and Rhonda made the tough. He, he, Rhonda and Scott made the tough decision to donate Justin's organs. And if I never met them and didn't know their name, I would still be praying for them every day, sending prayers and love out to them every day. So. You need to talk to your family. They need to know your intentions. They need to know your wishes, that you want to go help someone else. And those are the two things. So you register at registerme.org in the National Registry or when you get your driver's license. And then tell your family that you want to help someone. If, if this ever happens to you, you want to help someone. A lot of people a lot of people talk to their family about resuscitation. People say, well, if I'm brain dead or... If, if I can't be resuscitated without a machine, I don't want to live. And hospitals ask you about that. Tell your, tell your people, tell your family that you want to save someone's life as your final act if you can. And I think that's even the more important thing than signing up. But please, please do both. Uh, where they can connect you if you have more questions, anything about your book, where, where they can connect? Well, uh, wait a minute. What's that thing called? Yeah. I have a website. Uh, <laughs> my website is The Real Bionic Man, because when you read about all those medical things, you know that I have a pacemaker that beats, that creates every beat of my heart. You know that I have two steel heart valves. You know I have uh, organs from another person. I have a, a left eye, a, a prosthetic left eye that I'm, I'm trying, I'd like to partner with Carnegie Mellon University and their computer guys. I'd like to functioning eye kind of like the Terminator has. But uh, so I'm, I'm made up of parts and I've, I've been worked on by the best surgeons in the world. And uh, God bless them at UPMC and God bless the people at UNOS and CORE and all the other OPOs. Uh, so therealbionicman.com and you can read a little bit more about my story, see a video and connect you to Amazon to buy the book. All the links will be in the show notes and anything we talked about today. Thank you, Joe, for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it, sir. Absolutely. And if anyone has questions about organ donation, you can consult your local OPO or you can shoot me an email through. You can shoot me an email through my website. I'm very available and I'll help anybody. Thank you, Joe. Wrap it up. I want to say thank you, Joe Laffer, for being a guest on the podcast. You can find more about him and his book over at realbionicman.com. You can find all links in the show notes over at nocityonthesideline.com slash 85. Hey, please reach out and leave a comment or you have a question? Leave a, shaman, leave a comment in the show notes. Hey, I really, really would love to hear about your, your quarantine stories or anything you want to share about organ donations. I'm fascinated. And Joe, Joe is a really interesting man, and I learned a lot from stuff that I didn't know about. At the listening... Showing up every day and never giving up, it's kind of like being consistent. That's the word I keep keep listening, I mean, keep hearing when I'm 
listening to the re-listening to the episode before I sh- I shared it with you is the word consistency and showing up every day and never giving up. That's that's a lot. That means a lot. It's kind of like being a parent, being a dad, or just being just showing up no matter what against adversity and continue to do your best. Well, thank you for listening. Until next time, take care, give your kids a hug, and tell them much you love them. Hey, and I really appreciate you too. Take care. God bless. See ya. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe to the newsletter to receive updates of the show and helpful and useful tips. This has been a production of Foley 42 Media. Foley 42 Media.